Genesis chapter 1. You're not going to have to go far. Uh, it's the second or p- third page in your Bible. And the guys are uh, passing the plates around. I forgot that this morning. So they're, they're covering my backside. And uh, if you wonder why they're walking now, that's the reason why. Um, so, but as we begin this morning, uh, we're going to try to, over the next five weeks, uh, really dive in and, and understand what the scriptures say about marriage, and not just marriage in a general sense, but how to have a Christ-centered marriage. And, and a- as we develop this, there's really a big idea this morning that we're going to try to un- unpack and unfold, and what we will work at this morning is not even a full picture. And so this really is a, a four or five week series that you got to try to be here, or at least make plans to get the audio, um, because what we will look at this morning in many ways will be an incomplete definition of marriage that we won't complete until week four. Because marriage is ultimately, as Danny just said, a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. We won't get there until January 24th. Uh, and so this morning, what we will see, I believe, from the Genesis creation account um, where Adam and Eve or man and woman are made is, is what is there on the screen. That marriage is created and defined by God so that God may be glorified and humanity may flourish. And we need to understand, and I, and I think this could be a central point of misunderstanding in our culture currently, that marriage has a purpose. And you and I understand purpose. We have things in our lives all over the place that serve purposes. And we don't expect certain things to serve a purpose they were never intended for. So, for example, we do not expect our car to allow us to water ski behind it. car was never made for the water. does not have the equipment needed to float or to be put in the ocean. Now, there could be outlying examples. You have those amphibious vehicles. So just track with me, all right? So some of you are like, well, wait a minute. I saw this YouTube video. Yes, I know. Those videos exist. But there's a purpose that your car serves, and it's, it's not even to ride the rails. Yes, there are those construction vehicles that can lower the tracks. And you, okay, there's a purpose engagement rings serve. I was thinking about this as we were driving home from uh, Ohio yesterday. Uh, I bought Carrie a necklace for our 10th anniversary. And that necklace and her engagement and wedding ring serve very different purposes. Her engagement ring and wedding ring is a seal the deal type of piece of jewelry. Her necklace, I don't anticipate nor expect her to wear every day. She's not even wearing it this morning. I'm not offended about it. I'm not worried about it. I'm not wondering what is going on. Is there something that I missed? There's a different purpose. And you and I understand purpose, because we understand purpose in our lives. We don't use knives to eat in places that a fork would use and work best. So marriage has a purpose. And understanding that purpose, I think, will be vitally important to understanding how we are to interact, um, how we're to live out marriage. And so let me just give you a few things that that I hope um, this series does. And uh, where where we're going, the roadmap is we've got two weeks on marriage, We're breaking from that, not a full break, but a partial break. On January 17th, we're going to talk about uh, sanctity of human life. 
um, which really fits into well in kind of this family marriage idea. And then we come back for two weeks specifically on marriage. Um, There's a lot of things that I could say, a lot of examples I could give um, that, that could very easily be construed as a whole bunch of weeks just passionately communicating what we're against. And there will be appropriate times to illustrate where what culture has and believes and how culture operates is not the biblical way. But my intent over these next five weeks is that what we spend our time doing is understanding what we are for so much more than what we're against. Because if at the end of these five weeks we just simply are able to walk away understanding a whole bunch of things that aren't true, but we've never actually understood the truth, it feels like it's incomplete. If we are are able to understand the truth and what God's Word has and does say about these matters, then we're a little better equipped to identify the areas that aren't true because we have a clear picture of what is. And that's, that's the aim, is that it's not five weeks of ranting and raving against culture but it's five weeks of contending what the bible does say and putting forward lord willing a biblical understanding of what god has revealed and so i'm I'm after your minds and i will make no apologies about this i'm after your minds and i want your minds to be challenged by what god's word has to say and i would love for us on the backside of this, if not even every week, as just an area, an opportunity of response, that, that what we do out of looking through what the biblical text says about these matters is that we would learn to live more faithfully and that we would also engage others with greater thoughtfulness. I think far too often in the cultural debate that has surrounded marriage over the last six, seven, eight months, there are Christians that have not responded with thoughtfulness, and it troubles me. There is a time and a place to stand. There is a time and a place to respond. I'm not sure there is always equal, appropriate ways to respond. And I think if we were to learn how to live faithfully and then engage and respond thoughtfully, we may find a greater degree of openness and willingness to discuss some of these issues with coworkers, with family members, and that could be a really good goal for us to achieve as well. Again, I'm contending and after your minds for you to understand what the scriptures are for, that you might be able to articulate thoughtfully having lived faithfully what God's Word says. So that's a tall order. It's a tall order. I, I, I really feel the weight of this. I mean, culturally, this thing is, is, is all over the place, as you know. And, and I didn't want to come in in July, August, and do this at that point because it felt like it might have been too reactionary, and my own heart would have probably been a whole lot more ranting and raving than, than thoughtfully contending. And, and so I, I want us to just go before the Lord and, and ask Him to, to come and, and do some things in our midst this morning and through these five weeks that, that we might learn to live more faithfully, 
regardless of where you find yourself, whether married, single, that we may live faithfully, but also be able to contend and engage thoughtfully. And I think both of those things are desperately needed. So would you join me in prayer, please? Well, Lord, uh, I believe you've spoken, and, and I really believe that it's in our best interest to draw near and listen. And God, we thank you for speaking. As we even thought through last week in, in considering how you spoke in the process and the confidence that we can have, Lord, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm glad that you've not left us alone. You've not left us wondering. You have given us very clear instruction. And so, Lord, I pray for my words and my thoughts that they would be accurate to your word. God, I pray for the rest of us as we as we think. God, I pray that we would understand clearly what your word does teach and we would be willing to respond in the appropriate ways necessary that our lives may more faithfully live out and live in obedience to what you have said, but that we'd also be willing to engage thoughtfully. And we wouldn't just be the individual slamming their fists on the table, screaming, trying to get their own way. We would be willing to actually sit down and maybe engage in a thoughtful way. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, you would speak to us this morning, that you would come and meet with us in a special way. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate the word that you have inspired and preserved, that you would, you would make it make sense to us. And we ask this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, regarding marriage and purpose, and even its definition, if you would just Google mainstream definitions to marriage, you, you really find things that are, that are lacking any type of statement regarding purpose. And it's, it was fascinating to, to do so, and, and, and even to just, what is the definition of marriage? There's no purpose statement given to it. There's no intent or purpose behind it as popular culture or even dictionaries give definition to it. And you could go to psychology today and they would tell you that marriage is the process by which two people make their relationship public, official, and permanent. And so in some ways they've limited marriage to the event where perhaps you might have stood underneath a, a white arch and Maybe perhaps even in a church could have been justice of peace. They've limited and restricted marriage to that event where you've made things public now. And you could just go to Merriam-Webster's dictionary and, and they would say, the state of being married or united to a person of the opposite sex as husband or wife in a consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law. Now that's definition one. Definition two, they, they replace heterosexual language with homosexual language because they will have both and do have both there but there's again no statement of purpose but if we don't understand the purpose of marriage then then we can very easily slide and and find ourselves not fully thinking correctly about what the scriptures say about marriage psychologists want to tell us and want to put forward that marriage is simply for companionship, that marriage is simply for procreation, that marriage is simply for sex, that marriage can be for protection. And it's not that those things are incorrect. 
is that any of those things standing by themselves end up being incomplete. Marriage, yes, is for companionship. And I have loved every day of my 10 years being married with Carrie. Marriage is for procreation. We've got three to prove it. Marriage certainly is for the enjoyment of how God created our bodies to to celebrate that union. Marriage is for protection. I'm able to provide things for Carrie that she may not have been able to provide on her own, although she can be pretty feisty and has got a wicked kick. So there could be a day where I'm, hey, baby, you take the lead on this one. Go get them. I mean, we'll see what happens if that day ever comes. Um, but if those things are all we understood marriage to be, they're incomplete, not necessarily incorrect. They're incomplete. And what Genesis does is it gives us a look, it gives us a picture as to the purpose of marriage. Yes, there is an ultimate purpose that marriage does paint and point towards Christ. We'll get there in three weeks. But as we consider the purpose that the Lord gives marriage here in Genesis, let's go to the text. Let's consider these things together. I want to look at three passages with you. The first we will just look at real briefly. It's chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. So we just need to very, very quickly, very simply recognize that there was a point in time when time didn't exist, but there was a point in time where there was God and there was nothing else. And if He is the Creator, He does set the rules. And so the things that He says need to be heeded because He's the one that has given us the rules. He's the one that has created. And you have Genesis 1 through chapter 2 verse 3 really giving us a fairly detailed account of the chronology of the creation week. The six day week on day 7th the Lord rested. You have Genesis 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 3 giving us a fairly limited or general account regarding man. Now, chapter 2 comes in, beginning in verse 4 to the end of the chapter, and those roles of between chapter 1 and chapter 2 kind of flip, where chapter 2 gives a less detailed accounting of the chronology of the creation week, but rather zooms in on day 6 and gives us a much more robust definition and outline of God's creative work in regards to man. Both of those accounts matter. They are complementary to one another, and we need to consider both of them. And so, here's kind of how we will build to our big idea that marriage is created and defined by God, so that God may be glorified and humanity may flourish. I believe the scriptures teach that men and women equally bear the image of God. Men and women equally bear the image of God, and God has given men and women complementary tasks to accomplish as his representatives. And so that's where we'll consider first, and I believe those two truths do 
form then and crescendo into the end of chapter 2 where God does officiate the first wedding ceremony. And so in some ways this morning is almost a little bit more about gender roles than it is necessarily about marriage, but we will get there because the text crescendos into a marriage ceremony that really begins to now be the fulfillment of the intent and purpose that God built into the very people that he created. And so in Genesis 1, chapter or verse 26 and 27, Moses records for us, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That just translation, it's everything. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The image of God is most completely represented by maleness and femaleness. You cannot isolate one outside or apart from the other and have a complete image of God being represented. And one scholar writes, both the Hebrew word for image and likeness refer to something that is not identical to the thing it represents, but is an image of it. So think about all the Christmas cards that you got. And not the ones that say, you know, joy to the world with a star and a stable, but the ones with pictures. Perhaps it's your nieces and nephews, and we got a ton of them this year. Those are images, and I'm not saying anything profound here because we take pictures and we put them on our phone, and those are images. They represent what has been created. You can look at those images, and you can see some things from those images. We have family that right now live in London, and we got their Christmas card, and we're able to see physical characteristics of them. We're able to see how those characteristics have changed over the last several years. We're able to see things about them that the image reflects for us because that's what an image is intended to do. Well, men and women were created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. And the image and the likeness of God that we bear is often debated by theologians and there's not a simple definition because it certainly pulls in rational thought animals have thought they don't think about thinking we do rationality is a product of humanity that god created them unique that none else in the created order have conscious and consciousness certainly is an element of the image that we bear. Creativity, capacity for relationships, all of those are true. We almost could not exhaust the areas that we bear the image of God. One definition that I found really helpful was this. To image God is the soul's personal reflection of God's righteous character. To image God is the soul's personal reflection of God's righteous character. Now, where we'll go next week in talking about how marriage was attacked at the fall. You then have the entrance of sin in the world. You have now the fracturing of the created order. It now 
when you get to the New Testament, you have further details given about the, the process the Lord is working in us is to conform us to the image of His Son, His perfect Son, Himself. And there is a very appropriate way to understand the process that you and I as believers are in where we are growing in our relationship with the Lord and we are growing in holiness, we are being sanctified is the recovering of the image that was lost in Genesis 3, the image of God that we were created in. But God has created men and women in His image. And this is important because it it, it begins to beg the question, what does it mean to be male or female? We'll try to step into that a little bit. Traditionally, there's been three views about what it means to be male and female, the relationship between men and women, how this interacts. One view, it's, it's called the authoritarian view. We, we talked about it just a little bit here this morning in our CE class. It's, it's kind of the, I'm a man and I call the shots and you have no, no role, no right, no method, no vehicle to ever say anything against any male anywhere at any time because there's an authority and he's male in a general sense and I think we'll see that's not a biblical idea. There's, there's an egalitarian view which would be the, the full polar opposite which really says, you know what, there's, yes there's, create, there's, there's equality in the, uh, in the image that the men and women bear and, and there's no distinction in roles that they have. And, and I'm not sure we'll see that play itself out in the text either. What I will contend for is best known as complementary, where God has created equally men and women in His image, but to do so for the purpose of complementing one another in fulfilling the task that the Lord has given to them. And I believe the text bears that as well. And so as we continue to consider these things, the first part that we have to begin with is that men and women equally bear the image of God. There's no hierarchy in God's view or God's creativity or God's, or God's imaging of Himself between genders. If we begin to now go to Genesis 2, we begin to see some roles now emerge. And that really was the second idea, that God has given men and women specific tasks or duties to accomplish as His representatives. And those tasks or duties, they're complementary to one another. And I think it's significant and it's important that we understand that they are complementary Look with me at Genesis two fifteen to 18. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man shall be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. There's a few things we need to notice in this passage. One of them is the role and responsibility that the Lord gave to Adam, that the Lord gave to man. And he put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And that word work is incredibly significant. It means to cultivate. It also means to serve. 
that men are, our role in, in the spheres of influence that we have is to cultivate things. It's to be the lead servants in those spheres of influence. It, it has the idea of, of creating behind it. And you can, you can see Adam in the garden being given this task where, you know what, there's going to be some pruning that needs to happen. There's going to be there's going to be the care and the uptick or upkeep of of what the Lord has created. Adam, your job is to work. And this is all pre-fall. This is before sin. Adam, your job is to work, but your job is to keep as well. That word keep means to watch over or to guard. So God gave man the responsibility of cultivating things and guarding those things. Not to jump too far ahead, but next week we'll see Adam really whiffed at both. Adam's role was to cultivate and to guard, to work it and to keep it. If I would put that in and apply that in a family context, my, my role as a husband and a father is to make sure that my children aren't just simply fed and clothed, but to make sure that they're emotionally healthy, that they're mentally healthy, that where my wife needs just a, a mom time out, that I take the initiative to, to go and, and engage with that and say, okay, hey, baby, you matter. I need to cultivate you. I need to guard you. That's part of the role and responsibility that God has given me. So you know what? You need a day at the beach? I'll give it to you. And I'll be honest with you. I failed big time last year on that one. Big time. She was asking. We were talking about She's like, I'd love, a, I'd love just a, a, a day. And I'm thinking, okay. Well, she's always talking about like, Wanting to go see this friend in Ohio, like that'd be good. And like, and, and so I, it's so funny when I think about it now. I thought I was hitting a home run, and it wasn't even—I didn't even bunt. I mean, it was bad. I was like, "All right, you take you take the two young kids, and you you go to Ohio." And I, hang on, <laughs> hang on. All right, this, this is therapeutic. So thank you. All right, they have two young kids. There's a natural playmate for both. Thought it was be good. Wasn't good. Wasn't good. What she meant when she said, I would like a day by myself on the beach to just sit and think and read, was that she wanted a day by herself on the beach to sit and think and read, not a day in Ohio with two other kids. And, and so I whiffed big on that. So this coming summer, when the weather gets nicer, I've already begun making plans. All right, how can can I get her away, get her to the ocean, give her a day there to just sit and read and relax? Because that, that's part of my role is cultivating. Because she matters to that degree. It's not just that I was able to feed her and I was able to give her some money that she could go buy clothes. It's that, no, she, the, the whole of her matters. And I've been given the task and the responsibility to cultivate the whole of her. The same thing with my children. But I've also been tasked to keep and to guard and to protect and to watch over. And certainly this has, this has intruder in the middle of the night connotations to it. But it also has, what do we allow on our television set? What kind of books do I allow my kids to read? What am I, what am I doing to guard their little souls? 
supposed to keep, I'm supposed to cultivate. It's part of the role the Lord has given me. And so the Lord makes man. He puts him in the garden to cultivate and to guard. And then he comments at the end, it is not good that man should be alone. The only part at this point in the creative record that is not good. There's something off. There's something missing. And the response that the Lord gives is, I will make a helper fit for him. So Moses continues to record, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. We again have the words, a helper fit for him, repeated. Let's think a little bit about what those words mean. That word helper means supplying what is needed to another to accomplish the task. The word fit is the idea of a counterpart that corresponds perfectly to another. We have these in our world all over the place. Puzzle pieces. They're fits. There's a counterpart to each puzzle piece. The key that you will put in your car's ignition as you leave here this morning to turn over the starter and create the fire with inside your engine so that you can drive is fit for that lock. It's why you can't put other people's keys in your ignition because those keys weren't made to fit your lock. Every one of us probably every night plugs our cell phone into the power charger. It's not just any power charger. It's not just any cord. It's a cord that was created to fit. And it does so usually snugly so that it can't bump itself out. And however the technology has progressed with those things. But twice, the Lord sees that there is not a helper fit for him. And so he steps in and he does something about it. And at this point... I think the parading of the animals was twofold. It certainly was for the naming of the animals, but it was also for the convincing of Adam that he was without partner. For the animals to reproduce, there had to at least be two. It's what we see repeated in the ark. Two by two. Well, reproduction. I'm not going to draw you a diagram, but that's just basic biology. But for Adam... How's that going to work? The Lord parades the animals by Adam, not just to accomplish the naming of these animals, but to also show him there was not a helper fit for him. There was not the counterpart uniquely and specifically designed by God to accomplish the task that Adam had been given. And so continuing in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And this entire event now crescendos into verses 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. There is a counterpart that was created for Adam. A now helper that is fit for him. She was exactly what he needed to accomplish the task that he had been given. Just to think briefly through the commands given to both men and women, the commands given to Adam, and then I think what we see, the purpose then of the Lord creating woman. You have the Lord specifically to Adam, to man, giving him the command to work, it's cultivate, it's to serve, it's to bring to flourishing. You have him to keep, to watch over, to guard, to protect. We see in the text then the purpose then of, of women is, is, is a helper to supply what is needed and lacking. See, this idea that men can do all these things by themselves is just a, not a biblical idea. And I want to stay away from trite, funny ways to describe it because I think these things are tremendously significant. But I need Carrie to fulfill the role and the task that the Lord has given to me to fill. I need her for that. She's not a second-class citizen. She brings what I was lacking to the table. And if I have this idea of maleness in my mind, or marriage in my mind, that sees me as this dictator ruling over and stomping out insurrections, I've completely missed the entire biblical mark of what the Lord created this woman to be for me. She brings what I lack. And her fit is a unique complement. And we play off of that. Well, in Genesis 1 when the more summary statements were given in regards to the creation of man and woman, you have the Lord, after creating them, saying to both of them, and I believe His statements to both of them are significant and important for us, but you have Him saying to both of them, in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and every other living thing that moves. You have the Lord giving men and women together the commands to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill, to subdue, to have dominion. 
This is why we would arrive at and, and understand marriage to be a complementary relationship between a man and a woman because neither one of them had all the tools necessary to accomplish these tasks. The Lord created them for one another with a fit for one another so that they may be able to accomplish the role and the task that He gave them. And this crescendos in to verses 24 and 25 of Genesis 2 where a man shall leave his father and mother and she shall hold fast. That word leave there is to abandon, to forsake, to reject. Now we know and understand from other scriptures that the Lord highly prizes family. And when we understand the leaving of one as an abandoning of family or the rejecting of family, it's not that I now say to my mother, you mean nothing to me. It's that there is a higher priority now in my life. And I hold fast to the one who now operates and fulfills and sits in that position of higher priority. And I cling to her. The idea is to fasten oneself to an object, to literally be glued together. And understanding the purpose of marriage, we see in the text that the purpose crescendos into an event where there is a wedding and God Himself does preside over it. And marriage is created and defined by God so that God may be glorified and humanity may flourish. There's purpose there. There's intent there. And to be quite honest, marriage has been attacked since Genesis 3. That's the big idea next week. It's not been attacked since June. It didn't just become attacked when our Supreme Court was given legal documents to review and rule over. It's been attacked since the very beginning. And it's not just the purpose and the intent that we have to uphold. It's, it's, it's the biblical truths of, of the complementariness that men and women have and how the Lord created and designed them. But we need to make one other and it will be brief, and it's brief not because it's trite, but because of time, and singleness is not sinfulness. And the scriptures very clearly speak to singleness as actually a gift from the Lord. And I forgot to put that text in. It's in 1 Corinthians 7 that the Apostle Paul builds out this argument that he would actually prefer men and women to be single as he is because in their singleness, they're able to be devoted to something that married men and women cannot be. Namely, devoted to the service of the Lord. And he says this in verses 32 to 35 if you want to turn there. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. 
The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Earlier in chapter 7, in writing about marriage, the Apostle Paul said that actually marriage and singleness are both a gift from the Lord. That it's actually a grace gift. I think we could apply spiritual gift language there. That those who are married and have been called to be married are are actually given the grace they needed to be married. But those who are single and have been called to be single are given the very grace they need to be single. And there's language in this text, in this chapter, and even exhortation on the backside of what I just read, that if your passions burn too hotly, it's better to go and be married and to honor the Lord with those passions and desires that He's given you. But I I have met men who are wholly devoted to the Lord, met women who are wholly devoted to the Lord that are single, and they see their singleness as an opportunity for serving the Lord in ways and capacities they were never able to serve before in. One of the most profound statements that I ever heard said in regards to this to students when I was in student ministry was from my former pastor who had lost his wife just months before. And I I asked him if he would come in and participate in, in some instruction that we were giving about these things because as he and I had discussed these things in the office, I thought he had things to offer these students that I did not have to offer. And he sat in front of them months after losing his wife to a horrific, horrific battle of cancer. And he looked right at them and he said, I know exactly how you feel. For the first time in 25, 30 years, I'm reminded exactly how you feel. Something I couldn't say to him. And he said, your singleness at this point in your life is a gift. My singleness is a gift. And I need to use it to serve the Lord as most fully and in a most full way that I can. And my, I'm in the back and my jaw just drops. Like, wow. The man loved his wife, but things changed, and he now saw that for reasons he did not understand, the Lord had placed him now with the gift of singleness and the grace to live as a single man. He actually ended up getting remarried a few years later, and it was a joyful, joyful thing to celebrate as well. So, singleness is not sinfulness certainly not and I want to be careful in upholding marriage over these next five weeks to not somehow lead anyone to think that there's a second class of citizens that may attend and be a part of us that that aren't the married ones because it's just not true and whether you're married or you're unmarried understanding the purpose and intent of marriage does allow you to live more faithfully and engage more thoughtfully because we don't just need married people standing up for what the Bible says about marriage we, we need everybody 
We need to be living this out faithfully and we need to be engaging when and where appropriate in thoughtful conversation with one another. And so this morning we see purpose and we see intent. We see that it's not good for man to be alone and that that not goodness crescendos in through the making of woman to a marriage ceremony that God himself presides over where man and woman now together have been given the parts they were lacking to fulfill the task the Lord had set before them. And it doesn't take long for that relationship to become the center of Satan's attack. And we've seen that attack perpetuated over the last six, seven, ten thousand years. That's where we go next week. And in understanding how and where our marriages can be attacked, Lord willing will give us the ability to confront those attacks and be mindful and wise in the face of them. So let me pray for us. Father God, you have created marriage to be unique. You've created not to be contractual, not to be just simply consensual, but to be covenantal. You've created it with a purpose and an intent. And God, I pray that you would help us to see our, our, our given roles within marriage that, that you yourself created and how desperately we need one another. God, I pray that you would, that you would convict the men in this room where they have not sought to cultivate and to guard, that you would would impress upon them the responsibility they have as men to, to not just put food on the table or clothes on their kids' backs or their wife's body, but and not just to provide shelter, but but to care for their whole. God, I pray that you would help us to understand more fully the purpose and the intent that you created this relationship to have. We ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.